Welcome to the IEEE Future Networks podcast series, Podcast with the Experts, an IEEE Future Directions Digital Studio production. This first in a series of podcasts addressing the 5G deployment challenge features a panel of wireless industry veterans, experts who've spent their careers on the front lines building our nation's wireless infrastructure, discussing 5G deployment challenges in the areas of public pushback, policy, and public versus private options, and offer some possible solutions. David Witkowski, co-chair of the Deployment Working Group for the International Network Generations Roadmap, moderates the discussion with his Deployment Working Group co-chair Tim Page and Joanna Wang, who is Director of Government and Community Affairs with MODIS. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I have with us Joanna Wang from MODIS and Tim Page from Crown Castle International. Joanna, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Thank you for having me today, David. Uh, My name is Joanna Wang. I am Director of Government and Community Affairs with MODIS. MODIS is a site development services firm specializing in small cell solutions. We were founded in 2005 and have deployed thousands of wireless telecommunications facilities on behalf of the major carriers in some of the most challenging municipalities in the Western United States. We are headquartered in San Francisco and have a presence throughout Northern California, the Pacific Northwest, Central Texas, and Louisiana. Uh, My background, I am a licensed attorney, been in the industry now going on eight years, where I spent a significant portion of that time with Verizon Wireless in the network real estate department, leading all types of deployments, including macros and small cells throughout Northern California and parts of Nevada. So thank you for having me. Oh, welcome. Thanks for being here. Tim Page, why don't you give us an introduction to you? Hi, David. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, I work for Crown Castle, which is probably the largest cell tower owner manager in the United States with over 40,000 cell towers, 60,000 miles of fiber, and about 50,000 small cell nodes. Uh, We have offices in 46 states. I specifically work in strategic relocation, and my role specifically is to extend leases on existing cell tower sites and or find new locations to deploy them. The Deployment Working Group was founded particularly because I did a presentation at the IEEE 5G World Forum And in the course of that event, I began to realize that the engineering side of 5G wasn't really talking to the deployment side. In my experience, working at Joint Venture Silicon Valley and the other organizations that I'm involved with, deployment is such a critical topic in the success or failure of any wireless deployment I realized that it was critical for us to bring the deployment question back into the marketing and engineering side of wireless technology. It's very important that engineers and marketers, product managers throughout the value chain of wireless technology understand how important it is that these technologies be deployable. And the people that we're talking to today are the ones who are on the front lines 
having to work with the technologies that are available to them, making those trade-offs. So the value, I believe, of the deployment working group is, is that we will inform the wireless ecosystem to create technologies that will be more deployable, more satisfactory to the cities and agencies that are approving them, and ultimately more accepted by the general public. So let's talk about why deployment is an issue. What I'd like to do now would be hear from our panelists uh, as to what their experiences are in that regard. So Joanna, why don't you give us some anecdotes, some experiences from your time in doing deployments? I think part of the problem is that people don't understand that deployments don't just happen. A lot of work and effort goes into getting one site. Um, it's really hard and it's not a slam dunk, but people expect their phones to work when they need it. I think too, just given the time frame it takes to get a single site deployed, by the time we actually get to an approval process, the equipment's changed. We have power concerns. Engineering standards are different. I mean, and then we have to redesign and redesign. Right. Yeah, that that is very true. I, I think uh, certainly four years to do one small cell is is an amazing amount of time. Not not as long as some of the small cells that that we've seen, which in some cases I, I know of small cell deployments that took almost a decade um, to to finalize, and, and in some cases it was literally you know, nine to 10 years. So uh, that, that was, that's really, I think, startling to a lot of people that they realize just how hard it is to get these, this work done. Tim Page, why don't you talk about your experience in deployments? So I've been doing direct zoning and permitting services since 2012. And while that does not seem to be very long ago in cellular timeline, it's an eternity. And uh, before that, I used to do land development throughout large retail projects throughout California. So I've seen this from a number of perspectives. And I'm this, this may sound odd, but I'm not sure that wireless deployment is any harder than any other types of deployment in California. But since our focus is wireless, that's what we see. And a good analogy to this is all you have to do is look at the housing issue that we have in California. And the reason why that's so difficult is because of about 30 to 40 years of legislation about why that is so difficult. So it's not difficult today, it's been difficult for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in the closest analogy I can come up with is when we first started doing this, a cell tower was really analogous to an overhead power line. There, there was no other, no other application you could associate it with. And most planning departments have absolutely no experience with this type of infrastructure because it's so new. I can tell you one of my favorite challenges that we have is in, we love to list it, list it this way, and here's the irony. So John Smith accesses the city website on his phone, and he finds out when a planning commission hearing is. 
He then downloads that staff report on his phone to read about the project. He then opposes the project with an email sent from his phone in opposition to any improvement over the broadband network in his area, ultimately affecting the usefulness of his phone. And I mean, <laughs> I can't think of any better way to to point that out because there's a total disconnect between when we reach in our pocket and use our phone and how that data gets to the phone. So I I can probably provide some other ones, David. I just wanted to throw that out there to inject a little humor. You know, that's that's just a lack of understanding of, of how of how these things work. The other thing that occurred was is that somebody I was speaking about that gentleman who was complaining about the sites in his neighborhood literally posted video from his taken from his phone of the cell site and and of some hundred and fifty dollar meter that he purchased from Amazon that he claimed was going to tell him what the what the signal levels were and, and of course both you and Joanna know that testing a site requires a professional engineer with a $10,000 piece of test equipment that's been certified and calibrated to actually measure real levels. Why do you think that 5G is different than previous generations in regards to public perception? Or is this just something that we've we've seen over and over again throughout the, throughout the course of every generation of wireless? Tim, why don't you talk about that? I, you know, I can't speak for the first and second generations because I wasn't in wireless back then. But I'll be honest with you. I think we are the victim of our own overhype about 5G. But, yes, you're right. I think there is a lot of I mean, look at the Super Bowl, how much 5G advertisement was done during the Super Bowl. It was it was a significant percentage of the commercials that, that were done. So we are – talking about it a lot, prob probably a lot more, and I think you're right. We're probably talking about it orders of magnitude more than we talked about 4G. Right. Um, so if we are overhyping it, then, of course, it's on people's minds. And maybe it becomes coincident with other things that are occurring in society, and so people begin to see correlation without causation. They just see that, oh, they're installing 5G, and then I started getting headaches. Well, it must be the 5G because they told me that they were going to install 5G. Joanna, what are your thoughts on that? I think I agree with what both of you guys are saying in part. There's definitely some level of marketing hype that has made people perceive 5G to be different. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we all know that the technology is the same. Yeah, maybe we're using different frequencies, but it's all part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Nothing, it's, you know, 5G has this hype around it, this idea that it's different, it's cutting edge, it's it's sexy, right? That's what we as the industry are, that, that notion of what it's pushing. And also what 5G brings for future opportunities, whether it's, new ways of living, new ways of interacting with the world, right? Augmented reality, self-driving cars. 
applications we can't even imagine yet. And for those that are not ready to accept that as a way of life, they're, re they're resistant to it, whether it's 4G or 5G or 6G or whatever it looks like. Right. I think that's, I think you made a couple of very interesting points. Um, and certainly we have been, our species, our planet has been bathed in electromagnetic radiation since the sun first sparked to life. And we have, over the course of the last century, we've added numerous forms of uh, electromagnetic radiation to our lives, uh, you know, ranging all the way back to electricity. And in the late 1800s, when commercial electricity and the electric light bulb were first invented, people were afraid of it. Uh, a woman by the name of Linda Simon, a professor at Skidmore College, wrote, wrote an excellent book called Dark Light. It was a history of essentially technology that began with the with the invention of electricity and, and how people were afraid of electricity. They thought that it would disrupt their body rhythms. They thought that the electric light was going to hurt their eyes. There were experts and doctors at the time who insisted that electric light was going to cause everyone to go blind or that it was going to disrupt sleep patterns, uh, was going to give people headaches. I mean, you, you could take what people were saying in that time and replace light bulbs with 5G, and they would essentially be saying the same things. Um, I worked prior to cellular. I worked in the public safety world where we did towers for police and fire. People grew concerned about towers that were miles away from their home. Um, they would express concerns. And then as cellular began to densify the network, and for the benefit of the audience, Densification is adding technology into a coverage area that already has some coverage to improve the performance. Densification gives you more data, gives you faster data, it gives you slower uh, or faster latency, uh, faster response times. And so it's, as these sites have been placed closer to humans, we've had this reaction. To, to that technology, and people were, maybe they were okay with a tower miles away from their home, but now they're, they're afraid because it's on the pole next to their home uh, when they get into their car. And I think part of the challenge is that we haven't really thought through what these networks are doing for us in today's world. How is 4G broadband, 4G LTE made our lives better? And how do we then communicate the value of 5G to to the public. How do they? How will they understand the value of that? And Tim, why don't you go ahead and offer some thoughts on that? Well, I'm I'm going to say something pretty controversial, and it's it's this: there's there's no market for 5G. There's no market for 5G. So what what do I mean by that? The needs of most U.S. consumers are already met. They have connectivity. They have internet access, they can do online banking, they can access multiple popular apps. What do they need 5G for? And until you make that, that demand, and I'll, I'll give you an example. So we see these very beautiful advertisements every September when Apple comes out 
Samsung comes out. I, I can't even keep track of where Samsung is at. I think Apple is up to 11. But what do they advertise? They advertise the cameras on the phones. Right. <laughs> they, right. they, don't ad- yeah. they don't advertise the functionality, the broadband speed, uh, how much more data you can get on them. And so I'm the average consumer, and I am get, seeing a commercial for a new $1,200 phone, and unless it does something drastically different than what I have now, I'm not going to buy a new phone. So I think you have this, the the industry is trying to sell a technology that its end point, its consumer, is really not interested in, doesn't really have a desire to engage in. Well, and that, that is very true. And I, I think that's in my experience um, what, what has happened is that uh, people think of 5G as just making their phone faster. And for some people, and perhaps the industry has done too good of a job at making the network faster, 4G, LTE Advanced has really delivered performance levels that, that for most people are, are sufficient. But what I think is, I think you're touching on exactly what I believe the problem is. Most people are seeing 5G as how is it going to affect my phone? Right. When in fact, 5G not only improves phone performance, it makes the economics of deployment better because you can serve more phones simultaneously with with the same site. So we actually need less in low band 5G, for example, or mid band 5G, you actually need fewer sites because nowadays you probably need several sites to put that level of capacity in. But what they don't see is the massive machine type communication, which is for the internet of things. They don't see the ultra-reliable low-latency communication, which is going to enable augmented reality, virtual reality. They don't see the fixed broadband uh, as an alternative to their DSL or their cable broadband provider for their home use. And I think we're not doing a good job at communicating these new ideas to the public and how are they going to impact their daily lives. But I also believe that you know, sometimes I joke that the CEOs of those companies that are going to take advantage of those other things in 5G, they're probably still in high school. It's going to be a few years before they go through college, come up with their ideas, get together, hey, let's form a company. We've got this idea on how we're going to use this 5G network. So in order to build those new technologies, of course, the network has to exist. And I think we're in that, that bootstrapping phase so, Joanna, what are your thoughts on that? No, I think this question is extremely timely right now, given what's going on in the world with this pandemic. Everybody's stuck at home. You know, they're saying that school's not going to – parents shouldn't expect children to go back to school until maybe early next year. And right, what are what are we doing to help support the education system, the health system, to make sure that – while remote, we can still access these services. Um, I've 
seen and read about ways that the education system can change because of 5G. The idea that you can make an atom come to life through virtual reality so that students aren't reading from, you know, just they're not learning just from words on a paper, but there's a visual there. And, and every right. ch child learns differently, right? And if we can make that tangible for them, difficult physics concepts tangible, um, through augmented reality from your home mm -hmm. so that children don't have to be at schools while there is definitely a benefit for, you know, the social interaction that you get from it. I think this um, forced distance learning is really having us reevaluate what we can do in the interim to make sure that we're not leaving children behind and we have continued to give them opportunities to expand and grow and learn in the midst of all this chaos. Um, I, I think if we focus on those, the telehealth opportunities, right, remote surgeries, remote elective surgeries that couldn't be done at the hospital right now, but they're still very much life-threatening or important to a person's lifestyle. I think by emphasizing those, we kind of start to get the consumers to understand this is not just about your phone performance. This is about impacting how you interact with the world in ways that we or, or consumers can't fully wrap their heads around yet. And like you mentioned, right, the people that are probably going to make the innovative new and, and develop the innovative ways um, and new technologies really are probably the ones that are in high school right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think you know that, that that's poignant in that we need to have these networks first before those children, those high schoolers, can really get to a point where they come up with some, something novel. Right. Yeah, I, I think I, an analogy for me is uh, you know I'm I'm a bicyclist and um, there's of course been a lot of talk about making cities more bike friendly in order to encourage bicyclists. And so we, we've built bike lanes throughout our city and, and now we're, we're asking people to bike to work. Uh, certainly if you ask everyone to bike to work without building the bike lanes, they wouldn't do it because they would say, well, it's dangerous. I, I can't put myself at risk to that level riding on a very busy street without any kind of at least a, maybe an illusion of protection but that green that green line somehow or other is supposed to keep you safe well I, I feel better riding on a street that is at least painted to show where i'm supposed to be as opposed to taking my my life in my hands on on a street with nothing or, or having to ride on a sidewalk so if we don't build the lanes meaning the network we can't encourage behavior change we can't we can't build these new things because the network doesn't exist we can't come up with the ideas before we have the network the network has to be in place and of course that's exactly what happened with 4g 4g was started six years before the iphone was even released so uh, we, we talk about the smartphone as being the, the the killer app for 4g the thing that made 4g really valuable well, 4G was there before the killer app was created. So we built a network and then people said, oh, we could use that to do this thing with apps and information. And, and all of the 
innovation that we now have in, in communications was based upon the fact that we built a network and then people made use of it. So I do think that we have that same uh, situation going on right now in 5G, that we have to build a network with the features that we've talked about building it so that people can, can now look at that and say, okay, I can see how this is useful. I'm going to make this, I'm going to make a company out of this, and here's what I'm going to do. But we don't know what those ideas are yet. Uh, it's very likely that they are not related to, and I, I kind of dislike that I hear, well, I can download, you know, you can download an HD, uh, an HD movie in two seconds. Well, do I really need to do that? I mean, how, how often in my life do I need to download an entire movie in two seconds? Probably very, you know, very infrequently, if at all. But would I like to be able to have augmented reality on my phone? Um, maybe there's an application there that, that I could, that I could take use of. So yeah, I, I do believe that we have to expand our thinking beyond this is just going to make your, your phone faster. And, and that's what the public has to understand. And frankly, that's what the marketers have to do. Um, so one thing you touched on, Joanna, that was really uh, interesting to me was this distance learning, because that's something that I have actually been working on since we went into the shelter in place. Um, school districts, um, county supervisors, we've, we've had innumerable calls from people who are asking us for help in that regard. And I think that in some cases, we're actually having to ask the question, how can we quickly deploy in places where we do not have the networks? Because let's be honest, even in the Silicon Valley, there are places that don't have 4G connectivity. A school district might say, well, I'm gonna hand out a hotspot to all of our students. Ask me what I think about that, I'd say, well, it depends upon the carrier because you may not have that service. If I go with carrier A for my hotspots and I handed it to somebody who lives in an area where carrier A does not have coverage, well then what is, what's the point? They would have to leave their home, go to another location to use it. And of course they're not supposed to do that with the shelter in place orders. So how would we augment that network? Well, there's a variety of ways. Certainly we can put in temporary cell sites um, and even to the, some of the areas that we've talked about doing some of this in more rural areas would be to fly a balloon, uh, like what they call an aerostat, put it out about, about 2,000 feet. It's a tethered balloon uh, anchored to a vehicle on the ground. You feed it with power and fiber in it, and you can fly, you can fly a cell site on it. And they, they have like a 5,000 square mile coverage area, so figure like 25 miles in a radius in any direction, which is great, except that 4G doesn't support that many simultaneous sessions. I mean, 4G has a limitation. So if I were going to do that, I could say, yeah, sure, I've got a 4G site on a balloon flying over a city, but I know I'm going to cover more than 200 people at any given time. They're going to, 200 people are probably going to use that site which presents a problem. Now 5G offers the ability to support millions of simultaneous users. And so just in that one example, 5G would offer me the ability to solve a problem that I cannot fix with 4G, right? 
and, and unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of 5G client devices out there right now where this might actually be something that we would be working on. But in, we're, we're, if this pandemic had occurred two, two years from now, I think we'd be looking at a very different response to that. The other thing that I think we get into is um, how important is this to the country as a whole? We, we've heard the administration, White House, the Federal Communications Commission, every, countries have argued that 5G is, is critical. We have to do this. Um, and there's even There was even an idea floated at one time, as I recall, it came out of National Security Council, and somebody leaked a memo where the, the government was talking about making 5G a national program akin to the U.S. interstate highway system uh, or the Apollo space program, that it would be something that would be done you know, by the government. And, of course, it got shot down, and people were, were very averse to the notion of the government building uh, the 5G network. But there's also the counterargument to that, that it's too important to be left to private investment. Uh, or if it's not going to be nationalized, it should at least be heavily regulated to make sure that everyone has access to it. Thank you for listening to this edition of the IEEE Future Networks podcast with the experts. Discover more about the IEEE Future Networks initiative and inquire about participating in this effort by visiting our web portal at futurenetworks.ieee.org.